Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah. Book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament in the history books. may take you a minute to find it. That's okay. It's going to take us a minute to get there. We're going to talk this morning about vision. Now, vision is one of those words that has several meanings. It's the discussion of actually being able to see. It's the understanding that uh, we as humans have that our vision is that ability to clearly make out what is in front of us. Vision also refers to a foreseeing of what's coming, of what's happening ahead. And we're going to talk this morning specifically about what God-given vision is. I'm going to unpack this definition for you in just a minute. You can go ahead and write it there uh, on your handout, those of you that have handouts. It says, vision is a God-given conviction of what should be. A God-given conviction of what should be. Now, before we really kind of dissect that and, and break it apart, I want to just mention for a minute that Vision is something that is absolutely necessary for us to be all that God intends for us to be. That vision is something that we have to have. We have to have this understanding of what God intends for us to do, a conviction of what could be in our lives. And the reason is that without vision, the book of Proverbs says, everybody runs wild. That's not my paraphrase, that's an actual translation. Now, without vision, or in some translations, it's a revelation, but it's the word for seeing into the future what is going to happen. It says people run wild. You can imagine on a sports field, a football field, if 11 players went in completely different directions because there was no vision of where they were going. You can imagine an organization or a business where the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing, and as a result of not knowing where they were going, the business just went wild. And the truth is that we have thousands of churches across this land where there's no vision of what God is doing or where He's going. And as a result, everybody has their own pet projects and events. And as a result, the people just run wild. It is necessary because it gives us passion. It's it's the ability to to get up and say, listen, I've got a... I've got a passion about what I'm doing. Most of you that have been around for the seven months that I've been here know that that's a big word to me because we live in a world where people are just going through life at a mundane pace without any passion whatsoever. And understanding what God could do brings passion into our lives. It brings motivation. It gives a reason for us to to do what we're doing. Sometimes when we talk about people getting burned out in church or burned out in serving in the church, the reason that people get burned out a lot is either A, they're doing things God didn't call them to do, but there's nobody else to do it. Or B, they forget the motivation behind what they're doing. It gives us passion. It gives us motivation. It gives us direction, a clear understanding of where we're going, and it gives us purpose, a reason to get up in the morning. So let's go back to that definition. Because we're going to talk about what vision is, how we get a vision. Tonight, we're going to continue to unpack this and ask, well, what is the vision for this church? What has God given me as His vision for this church? And we're going to talk about that this evening. But a vision simply is a God-given conviction of what should be. Every word in that definition is specifically chosen. First of all, it is God 
given. There are a lot of people running around with all kinds of ideas of what we ought to be doing or what ought to happen, but a lot of times, a lot of people stand up and talk about it. You go to businesses or whatever, and I'm not saying that businesses don't have vision, but for our purposes in this church, we don't want to do anything that is not God-given, God-directed. And so the first thing about a vision, it is God-given. Secondly, it is a conviction. It feels like a moral imperative. It's not that it could be like this, as it says at the end. It is that it should be like this. It's, it's different than saying, well, well, maybe this could happen or that might ought to happen. The truth is, it is saying, no, if we are going to do what God has called us to do, it must be like this. It's something deep within us that says, this is not just, we're not going to stay like we are. We're not going to stay status quo. We're going to move forward because God has called us to something greater. A visionary person is a person that in the words, I think it was a Bobby Kennedy said, most people look at the world and ask why. And I look at the way things could be and ask why not. It is the kind of, of people that look at where we are as a church and as individuals for you and your life. And instead of looking around and saying, why am I in this shape? Why is this happening? Why is that happening? It's saying, why can I not be doing this that God's called me to do? It is a moral obligation. And let me tell you that what we're going to talk about this morning is how God begins to develop that within you personally and within churches. But then we're going to talk about tonight what I feel God is calling us to do. And I'll tell you right from the beginning, I think we have a good church. All right? I think we have a good church. Wow, y'all are... Maybe I need to say that every week, right? (laughs) We have a good church. We have good Sunday school. We have good worship services. We have... Uh, good ministry opportunities. We have good outreach. But a book that was published recently says that the greatest enemy of great is good. And I don't want to be a part of a good church. I want to be part of a great church. And what I believe God is calling us to do is to ask what are the things that we must be doing to be a great church. That when people talk about First Baptist Goodlettsville, they talk about the great God they serve because of the great church they are. And what we are going to talk about is God beginning to birth that within us. It's to take us from a good church to a great church. Now in your handout, there's a verse of Scripture that comes before we really delve into Nehemiah and talk about how God begins to develop this. And it tells us what kind of people God is looking for in order to bring about God-given vision. And to give you a little background into this story, this is the story of King Asa from the Old Testament. You can read it later in 2 Chronicles chapter 14-16. through 16. And King Asa was a king that started out real well. He was a guy that was doing what God called him to do. Early on in his being a king, he, he had this decision to make. These people were attacking. And he went directly to God. And he prayed to God. And he asked God. And he asked for God's guidance. And when he got God's guidance, he went full force as God had told him to do. And he won a great victory. Many, many years later, another situation arose. Very similar in stature, it was people coming around them, about to attack them. And instead of going to God and seeking God's guidance, he went to his allies and his adversaries and he built a coalition. And a prophet comes to him and says, that's not what God intended. 
And he says this verse to him. He says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. His. You want to know what kind of people God is looking for in order to take His vision for your life and for this church and move it into that great territory? And He's looking for people that are completely His. He is looking for churches that are completely His. And what we have to ask ourselves the question, and we're going to see in the life of Nehemiah, is a man that suddenly became a man who became consumed with what could be. Or better yet, what should be. Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to talk this morning, uh, this is a two-part sermon. You know when TV show has a really big episode, they split it up into two, so everybody gets excited. Well, you ought to get excited. It's a two-part sermon. If you're not too excited about that, I can combine it all right now back into one. Double time this morning. It's a two-parter. We're going to talk about this morning kind of laying the groundwork. And then tonight we're going to talk about some specifics about what I see, some general things about what I see in the future, and we're going to talk about getting involved in that and personal commitment. But this morning we're just going to begin to lay the groundwork. So the truth is if you're here this morning, you ought to be so excited that you get to come back tonight to hear the rest of it. And I believe that tonight is going to be an important night in the life of our church. Six o'clock in this room. Nehemiah chapter 1. The first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is that God's vision always starts with a dislocated heart. Now, I know that sounds painful, but I'm going to explain it in a minute. Verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakalel. In the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Now, I know you all exactly know exactly what all that means. Month of Chislev, 20th year, citadel of Susa. Here's the thing. Don't worry about it. Not that it's not important, but for what we're doing today, we're moving ahead. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Here's what happened to Nehemiah. He was in exile still. He was actually, though, had risen to a prominent place among the king. We're going to see in just a second. But he begins to get reports about his former people, where his former homeland, or where his people are from. If you remember the Israelite history, uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were both conquered. And uh, around uh, 586 B.C., the last of them were conquered and taken off to the Babylonian Empire. And after a while, a new guy came and took over the Babylonian Empire, and they, they were beginning to let some of the Israelites go back to their old places. And when they got back, everything was in ruins. It had just been destroyed. Uh, people describe it like we see when things go through and bombs hit places. Or, you, you know, those of us that are around here are familiar with tornadoes. That When tornadoes go through, they say it just looks like a bomb went off. That, that, that Jerusalem looked like that. 
This weekend, we went back to West Tennessee to see our family and take care of some, some business. And as we drove past Jackson, I, I drove through Union's campus and looked as they're rebuilding that. And just to let you know, next week we're going to take a special offering for Union along with all churches all across the state to help them rebuild. But as I drove from, from Jackson to Dyersburg on a road called 412, it's just a road from Jackson to Dyersburg, as you leave Jackson on both sides of the roads are these huge just places of trees. And as soon as you got on 412 and started toward Dyersburg, if you looked off to your left, there was a whole field of trees just taken out, destroyed. Jerusalem was a place that had been completely destroyed, laid waste. And so all these people start going back and they have this huge task. And so the first thing they do is they begin to build their houses back. And they begin to build things back. They try to get the, the, the law back. And they're not even thinking about temples and all that kind of stuff. They're just trying to get their houses back. But the problem is that when they're building their house, they're not building anything for the community. And so there's no protection for them. And so Nehemiah's relative comes back and says, Listen, the wall is broken down. Its gates have been burned. There's no protection. And the time that Nehemiah was living, the most important thing for any city was its wall. Its place that was around it that protected it from people coming in. Without the wall, people could come into the city, take what they wanted and leave. But the wall provided protection. And Nehemiah hears this report. He understands what's happening. And even though he is in the lap of luxury, even though he's in the great place, that he's in the service of the king, it tells us at the end of this chapter, he was a cupbearer to the king. He was the king, the, tr- the, the person the king trusted with his life. Even though he was in a great place, suddenly his heart became dislocated. His heart suddenly landed in Jerusalem with those people instead of staying where he was. He suddenly became concerned about what should be instead of what was where he is. And so suddenly his heart dislocates itself into somewhere else. I read recently of a great missionary to Africa. I got him, David Livingstone, and he was a medical doctor, did mission work, uh, made maps of a lot of Africa, was credited uh, by people all around about his exploration of the Nile River and its source and all of those kind of things. But David Livingston, when he went to Africa, went for several other things, but had his heart captured by the people of Africa. And in his writings, he talks about his love for Africa and the need for people to come to Africa. And there's this interesting little part, maybe a quote you've heard, maybe some of you haven't, but he says to the people as he's coming towards his death, that when I die, bury my body in Britain, but bury my heart in Africa. And so when he died, they took his heart out of his body, they buried it under a tree in Africa, and they sent his body back to Britain. David Livingston came to love those people so much that he had a dislocated heart. In the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, it talks about Jesus being in the royal palace of heaven, being right next to the Father. And in the midst of that, he decided that he had to leave that place and come to earth for us. His heart was dislocated for us. And so he left heaven. Paul in the New Testament talks about what had happened in his life and how he had to uh, tell people about Christ. In fact, on your handout is a verse of Scripture that is just amazing to me. It's in Romans chapter 9, and Paul is telling the Romans about his love for the, his own people, for the Jewish people. And he says, I speak the truth in Christ. 
I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. This is what Paul says. He says, listen, if there is any way I could give back my salvation so that the people from my own race could come to Christ, I would do it. I want you to think about that for a minute. Who in your life would you give back your salvation to see them come to Christ? Who in your life are you so concerned about that you would give up what God has given you in order to have them come back to the faith? Now, we all know we're Baptists. We believe and know the truth of the doctrine that once you're saved, you're always saved. Scripture teaches that. I'm not going to go into that right now, but it does. And so Paul couldn't give it back. But just to have a heart that says, if I could give this back, I would, because I care about them so much. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a dislocated heart to me. Most of you know about my deep desire to see the people of Brazil come to Christ. I've been four times now, and we'll be going back. You'll hear some more about that tonight. We're going to be partners with going to Brazil. Not just Brazil, other places, but Brazil. And people ask me, why do you keep going to Brazil? Don't you think, you've been four times, don't you want to go to some other place? And the truth is, there are parts of me that would like to go to some other place. But the first year I ever went to Brazil, they put us in a bus and they drove us up to an orphanage. Supposed to have 74 kids, or 64 kids that day. We got there, someone had dropped 24, 27 more kids off. Just dropped them at the door and said, we can't do anything with them. You take them. So they had 91 kids. We prepared for less than that. We got there. Kids are running all over the place. You talk about running wild. Kids are running wild. First day, we're walking around. We're just, you know, talking to the kids, doing some backyard Bible stuff. I was kind of helping to lead that team, and so I was walking around evaluating all this. And a little girl walks out from the group and walks up to me. And she just puts her hand in mine. Her name was Isabella. I don't have a clue where Isabella is right now, but I can tell you that the moment she put her hand in mine and she looked up into my eyes and I asked her house parent what happened, she said her parents didn't want her anymore, so they dropped her off on the front gates. That moment, my heart was dislocated. There have been others. There was a little girl that week that we found out had been dumped in a trash can, literally. They took her out. We couldn't speak a word of English. Uh, we, could, we could speak English. They couldn't speak English. We couldn't speak a word of Portuguese. She couldn't speak English. We're sitting around one day. We had an interpreter there, and she just started laughing. Just started laughing. And her laugh dislocated my heart. There was a man that we went in and visited in his home, and he had about seven kids there. And it was a house not much bigger than most of our Sunday school rooms. Some of our Sunday school rooms are bigger. Seven kids sitting around on couches. That's where they lived. Had a little stove over on the side. That's where they cooked. 
And as we began to talk and minister, we found out that he had not accepted Christ and we shared Christ with him. And before long, he and his oldest three kids came to know Christ that day. And my heart was dislocated. Now here's the thing. You don't have to go to Brazil to have your heart dislocated. It just has to be dislocated to the place where people are hurting and are in need. So how do we get dislocated hearts? How do we develop dislocated hearts in our lives? Here's the first thing that has to happen for dislocated hearts. First of all, there has to be an honest evaluation. And that's of yourself. Before we ever start asking God what He wants to do, before we ever start looking for God's vision, we must evaluate who I am, where I am, what I think, how I love, what I'm trying to do. You need to ask some hard questions. Do I care about the people that are around me? Do I care about my coworker that's not a Christian? Do I care about my family member that's not a Christian? Do I care about the people living on my street that don't go to church? Do I care about the hundreds that are around this church that are not going to church anywhere? Do I care about the thousands of people in this community that have not heard the name of Jesus or have not accepted Him? Do I care? And that's not to me meant to be a guilt question. It's just an honest question. Do I care? And if I say I do, what's the evidence that I care? Or have I become desensitized to the lostness around me? I saw a very discouraging point five this week. Now, I know point fives generally aren't necessarily discouraging or encouraging, but I saw a discouraging point five. For years now, I have talked about lostness in North America, and I have talked about that seven out of ten North Americans are lost, are not saved, are not followers of Jesus Christ. This week, I saw the number is now 7.5 out of ten are not followers of Christ. Now that tells me we're losing ground. Because if we were doing what God had called us to do and God was really raising up people that were coming to Christ, that number, instead of going to 7.5, ought to be going to 6.5. But it's not. And part of the reason is we don't care. When we get honest about it, we think about it, we just simply don't care. Here's the second thing. It takes thoughtful consideration. It takes time. Look at what Nehemiah says in verse 4. When I heard these things, his heart gets dislocated. How he sits down and weeps. He shows that real compassion. He has an honest evaluation. I hadn't been doing anything about this. I didn't know it was such bad shape. His eyes are suddenly opened. His vision is cleared. And then it says, for some days. He took time to think through it. (coughs) He took time to sit down and to think through this and to mourn about it. In our day and time, it's not easy to have thoughtful consideration because things move so quickly. What becomes more and more amazing to me is how quickly big news becomes no news. How quickly someone will show up on CNN, on Fox News, on MSNBC, on the Today Show, the early show, Good Morning America, Good Morning Nashville, Good Morning Ridgetop, whatever they have. And it's the big news. Everybody's got it. Interviewing the same people. And within a day, nobody's on the story anymore. 
They're always out looking for the next thing, looking for the next thing. And what that does is that makes us desensitized to the fact that we need to think about real issues and real things going on and to really let them develop. Nehemiah sits down. He thinks through it. And then, and then we have to go after God. We have to seek God. That's the third step. We do honest evaluation. We do thoughtful consideration. And then we seek God. Look what he says. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We seek after what God has. When you begin to do that, when you begin to think about that, when you begin to understand what's happening, when you begin to understand what's going on in your heart, God will begin to move you to a place where your heart is dislocated for people. Your heart is dislocated for the people around us, for the people in this state, for the people in this country, for the people in our world. And you're asking yourself the question, now what can I do? Now, Lord, something's got to be done. Nehemiah sits and says, something has got to be done. But I'll tell you this, you are not ready yet to ask the question, what do I do? Because the dislocated heart is just the first step. The second one is this, is God's vision will always lead to a broken spirit. Now, here's the thing. Many of us in this room, we hear about a problem, we want to fix it. We think, well, how can I fix that? How can I do this? There's got to be a way. And we sit around and we try to figure out the best possible way for us to fix something. And at this stage in developing vision, what God is saying, if you're in your own life and you're trying to figure out what God is doing, you begin to get a hunger for people, a thought for people. You're asking yourself how you can help. The first step is not to ask, okay, now what do I do? The next step is to say, God, continue to birth within me a desire to see it done. Here's the reason. Because most of us, when our heart gets dislocated, aren't ready to hear the radical steps God's going to call us to do to see it fixed. We're not ready. And so God has to bring us to a point where we finally get ready. That's what happens with Nehemiah. He just he comes to this point and it says, For days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then he begins a prayer. And the truth is, his prayer is the result of a broken spirit. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, the word broken spirit is not used much, but it's always used with a contrite heart, a broken spirit. The understanding is that they go together. A broken spirit is a spirit that has been crushed, that has been bruised, that has been hit, that has been injured. And a contrite spirit is a humble understanding of who you are before God. So how does the broken spirit come? Once God dislocates your heart and you think something's got to happen, then you continue and it's almost like you go through the same process again. You do some evaluation. Chapter 1, verse 5. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant of love with those who love Him and obey His commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Here's what happens is that Nehemiah first comes and realizes that if he's going to do what God has called him to do, that he is going to have to understand some more things. And the first thing he has to understand is to get an adequate understanding or a right understanding of who God is. We need a correct understanding of God. 
If you look at the beginning of his prayer, he starts talking about how great God is. He's the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who obey him and obey his commands, love him and obey his commands. He starts the whole prayer by reminding himself and declaring praise to God. Sometimes people have a dislocated heart, and the first thing they try to do is, how in the world am I going to fix this major problem? And the problem is they make their problems real big and their God real small. And the thing is, when you begin to exalt God for who He is, then suddenly all the problems that you see are diminished. One of my favorite imitation hymns is, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus. I love at the end of that uh, chorus when it says, Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Here's the reality that when we look at as a church, if we say, God, we feel you're calling us to something great. Our hearts are dislocated for the people of this community, the people of this town, the people of this region, and we're going to begin to go after them. Here's the thing. When we look at that our own and we look at our buildings and we look at our location, we look at who's here, we look at all that stuff, we can say, whoo, that's a big problem to have. Or we can look and say, we're thankful we serve a big God that's going to guide us through anything. There's a difference in understanding. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which I highly recommend if you would like to do some deep reading. I know that sometimes the word like to do deep reading don't go together, but if you would. Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, he says at the beginning of that book, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that no person nor no church has ever risen above its view of God. And I just want to tell you right now, if our view of God is a boxed-in God that can only do so much, then we'll be a boxed-in church that can only do so much. But if our view of God is the omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, great, loving God who desires for us to take His message to the people of this community and to the nations, if we believe that we serve the One that is able to do whatever He wants and that loves us beyond what we can imagine, if we believe that we serve a God that wants to do in our lives more than we can ask or imagine, then we can be a church that does more than we can ask or imagine. That would be a great place for an amen, by the way. The problem is most churches like to stay boxed in. I'll just tell you, as your leader, as the pastor that you have called, I don't like living in boxes. I don't like staying there, and I don't like churches. I love this church but I don't want to be a part of a church that says we're just fine where we are. Because I serve a God that says that's not what He is about. The second thing is we have to have a correct understanding of who we are. It goes back to that that honest evaluation. And and, and Nehemiah, again, almost like Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah, when he says, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Look at what he says in verse 7. Well, excuse me, in the middle of verse 6. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. That is called repentance. That is called honest evaluation. That is called a correct understanding. We have acted very wickedly towards you. 
We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He comes and he says, we are at fault. You had every right to send those people to take us over because we didn't do what you called us to do. And I understand now that where I am is, in, is not where I need to be. And so, God, I confess my sins. I repent. I turn around. I change my mind. I say that I am tired of living that way. And then the last thing is we recommit ourselves to God's agenda. He says in verse 8, But you remember the instruction you gave Moses. You say, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. Basically, you've done that. But if you return to me and obey my commands, that even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to a place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people who you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by grading favor in the presence of this man. He says, God, listen, we have been wrong. It has been wrong what we've done. We haven't moved forward like you've called us to. We didn't do what God called us to do. And so now you have punished us. And now that that punishment is over, Lord, we are returning to you and we are back on your agenda. Nehemiah realizes that what he has ahead are big days of lots of work and difficulty. But he also realizes that he serves a great God who will be there. So after God dislocates our heart, after God gives us a broken spirit that He will not die, here's the last thing this morning. His vision will always require radical faith. It will always require radical faith. At the end of chapter 1, He gives this little, little phrase, I was cupbearer to the king. Now those of you that remember or know anything about that day, that that kings were often attempt, or had people attempt to assassinate them. And one of the best ways to assassinate a king and not leave any trace in that day when they did not have 1,400 CSIs on TV, and everybody knew about forensic evidence, was to poison them. And so, people would often test things for the king. Now, the thing is, if you wanted somebody to test something for you, you better trust that person, right? And it tells us in Scripture that he was the cupbearer to the king. He was the last line of defense. He was the man that the king gave his life to. Nehemiah would taste it. They would wait to see if Nehemiah died. And if he didn't die or get sick, they gave it to the king. Now, I realize that may not be a glorious job. Although you get to think, you get to eat some good stuff, right? I'm sure the king was eating the best in the land. But it was one of the highest positions you could attain. And Nehemiah decides that it is time for him to act on this vision. God has given him something he needs to do. But in order to do that, he's going to have to take a radical step of faith and ask the king if he can leave. Now, in that day and time, asking the king if you could leave was basically saying, I'm giving up my responsibility. I'm giving up my loyalty to you. And I am leaving and going back to where I was. And as a result of me leaving and going back and giving that up, I am saying that I'm no longer in your service. And in that day and time, the king, in all his rights, could say, I will release you from your service by death. So this isn't just uh, asking the principal for a note to get out of school. 
This is, I'm putting my life on the line. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, In the month of Nisan, not the car, the month, in the 20th year of King Eric Xerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine, gave it to the king, and I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you were not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. You realize the king knew him well enough to know when he was down. Now here is the important thing. It says in the next verse, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, here's the thing, and we're not even going to all that he says, but you know he asked if he can go back. Chapter 2, verse 2 tells us that if we are going to do what God has called us to do, then accomplishing God's will will require not only radical faith, but overcoming fear. Overcoming fear. Nehemiah was scared to death. Very much afraid. But yet he knew God had called him to do something. And even though he didn't know how it was going to end, he stepped out. On Sunday nights we've been talking about um, a guy uh, named Jonathan in the Old Testament in a study called Seizing Your Divine Moment. And one of my favorite parts of that, of that story is Jonathan realizes that his father, who is the king, is not acting on what God has called him to do and that they need to go attack the Philistines on the other side. And so Jonathan, without his dad knowing or without anybody else knowing, he sneaks off with his armor bearer and he looks at his armor bearer and he says, you know what, it's time for us to go attack the Philistines and here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out there and we're going to attack them and maybe the Lord will deliver us. We talked about extensively in that class that most of us, when we get ready to step out on faith, want something more than maybe, right? When you step out, you don't want to think, well, perhaps the Lord might show up. But the truth is, it's not faith if there's not maybe involved. It's not stepping out if there's not some fear around. I'm very much indebted in my understanding of vision and God-given vision as I've studied it over the last few years, to, to a few men. Uh, one is Andy Stanley, whose dad is Charles Stanley, pastor of uh, First Baptist Atlanta. Andy has started his own church in North Atlanta. Another is uh, a guy that you'll hear more about tonight. Uh, just uh, heard him a couple of weeks ago, Kaz McCaslin, and his view and, and a vision and what it means. And then another is a guy named Chip Ingram, who was a pastor for a long time in California and now does Walk Through the Bible Ministries. But Chip tells the story of when he was a pastor doing something very similar to what we're going to do tonight. And getting ready to do that, he thought he needed to take it to his elder board. And here we have deacons. In his church they had elders. And I will tell you that what we're going to present tonight, the deacons have already seen and we've talked about. And as he got ready, he, he, he shared all that was going to happen. And they knew it was a big step. He knew that there were some major changes. He knew there were some big things happening. And he looked around the room and everybody said, all right, we're ready, we're ready. And somebody said, we need to pray before we leave this room. And so they picked the oldest elder in there. I guess that would be the elder elder in there. And he stood up and he said, guys, let's hold hands and let's pray. And he bowed his heads and he said, Lord, you know me, and you know right now I am shaking in my boots because I am scared to death. He says, if you so please, then I want you to do with this church what you choose to do. Do whatever it is. 
But I just want to be honest. I'm afraid of what that means. Chip Ingram said he raised his head after saying amen, and everybody walked out. And Chip walked up to him as his pastor and said, that's one of the most honest and bold prayers I've ever heard. And the truth is, tonight we're going to present some things that we see God doing in the future, some things that we need to do, some steps we need to take to get there. And I'll tell you, I don't have it all figured out. Deacons, we don't have it all figured out. Church people, we don't have it all figured out. And the truth is, God's going to change some stuff in the middle. He knows, we just don't. But my prayer is, even though some of it scares me to death, and I am shaking in my loafers, I don't have any boots on. I want God to do in this place what He wants to do. Whatever that means. And what that means for us is that we've got to do whatever it takes to see it done. And Nehemiah goes before him and he says, listen, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm after. I need to have this happen. And he lays his life on the line. It reminds me of what Jesus told his disciples when he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And then he goes on in the next verse. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Vision is one of those words that gets tossed about a lot out there. And people talk about having vision or not having vision or having this or having that. The truth is that vision only comes from God, but we must be in the right place to receive it. And I just want to tell you that when I talked to the search committee seven months ago, eight months ago, I guess it's been nine, nine or ten months ago we talked first. They laid out where you were as a church. I laid out who I was as a pastor. And one of them asked me in the first meeting, what, what do you think you might change? And I said, I don't know. I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go, and for a while, I'm just going to evaluate what I think God wants to do. And I've done that. I know many of you have come to me or praying about what God wants to do or asking God what He's going to do. Begin to get an idea that God can do some great things. We begin to think about all that has in front of us, and the truth is that the time has come for us to start stepping out in some ways in faith. But that only works if we come with our hearts already dislocated for the people in this community, for the people that need to come to know Christ, for the people in our own church family that have, that have walked away from a while, that aren't following Christ like they ought to. That only comes from broken spirits that come before the Lord, not in pride saying, I see the problem, I can fix it, but humility saying, God, how can I be used to do this? What in the world can I do? And it will only come when we take some steps of radical, scary, shaking-in-your-boots kind of faith. And we say, God, I'm ready to go. And I don't know where you are. I don't have a clue where you are this morning. I don't know where you are in your relationship with God. I don't know where you are as you look to the future of this church. But I know this. If we are a people who are committed to Him, the Lord is searching roaming his eyes to and fro, looking for people who are completely his. And if we as a church are completely his, God will do some amazing things in our midst. But it's going to require us. 
this morning. And if you're here, you've been a long-time member, short-time member, visitor to this church. I believe God is asking you, are you willing to get on board? Are you willing to have your heart dislocated, your spirit broken, and are you willing to take some radical steps of faith? And this morning during the invitation, we're going to have the invitation open. And if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ, let me say that I want to give you that opportunity every service that we're a part of. And so this morning, I will be here. And if you, you came and you, you're hearing some things and you want to accept Christ and you, you have that in your heart, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. And so I'll be here. If you're here and you've been a part of, uh, of the last few weeks of visiting our church, of coming and, and just seeking if this is the place God intends for you, then I'll be here. And maybe your part of, of, of getting on board with God's vision is to become and be a part of what we're doing. I'll be here. Church family, this is what I want to ask you. Are you willing? Are you ready? Are you willing to let your heart be dislocated and your spirit be broken? And are you ready to take some bold steps of faith? This morning during this time of invitation, some of you may need to come and you need to get at this altar and you need to pray that God will begin to change your heart and your agenda. Some of you may just come and say a prayer of commitment. Lord, I'm ready to do whatever you call me to do. I'm ready to go wherever you call this church to go. Some of you may need to just come and say, Lord, I'm not there. And I know I should be, but I'm not. And I'm just being honest with you this morning. That's not where I am. But I want you to begin to change my heart because I want to see you move. This morning is a time of us saying to the Lord, whatever it means, we're ready. Whatever it means, we're ready. We're ready to tear down the boxes and begin to live in that unbelievable beyond we can ask or imagine. We're ready to tear down the box and to say, Lord, we want to see people be passionately devoted to You. Lord, we have lived for a while as individuals, as a church, when we have done good, but we're ready to be great for You. And this morning, the question is, are you willing and are you ready? I'm going to pray in just a moment, and after I pray, we're going to have a time of invitation. And if the Lord has spoken to your heart and is calling you to a public response, if He's calling you to come and to accept Christ or to let people know that you have done it, if He's calling you to come and to join with what we're doing at this church, if He's calling you to come to this front, this place where we can set aside ourselves and say we're ready to move forward, then I'm going to ask you to do what God calls. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, just as the man that you have called to lead this church, to pastor this church, let me say I'm willing. Lord, I know that you have already begun to dislocate my heart and to break my spirit. And Lord, that you are calling us to some radical steps of faith. And Lord, I am willing and I am ready. Lord, my prayer is that as a congregation, you would find us as people who are completely devoted to you. That we are completely yours. And that this morning, Lord, we would be open to whatever. Lord, we know that that is a scary proposition, that that is unsettling, but Lord, we are ready for whatever. This morning, Lord, I pray that Your will is done in this place. That hearts are changed, that hearts are dislocated, that spirits are broken. 
Lord, and that we become willing to do whatever in radical obedience to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.